0: come on, lift your hands up Father, we bless your name we praise you this morning, Lord, you're in this house today, we're close to you we feel your presence, we know God that you hear us right now and so Lord, we just want to move with your spirit, we want to be moved by your spirit today and so Lord, come do your work in us, let us begin to reflect who you are, let your word find its place in our heart, let your word find its place in our life, change us Let us begin to just look more and more and more like you every day, and sound more and more like you every day. But Lord, for the next few minutes, God, we're attentive to your word, and so Lord, pour into us, and press on our hearts, God, what you want for us, your truth, your direction, your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You may be seated, amen. Well, good morning. You guys look good. And it's always a good Sunday when they kick me off my road and they say we need your seat. And you know what? And I'm always I'm going to say absolutely, okay? Uh, it's good to see you guys. If you got your Bible, we're going to we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 uh, is where we're going to be starting. And uh I want to say this. Hey, it's good to have Bella back home with us today. Yeah. Her and Cannon have been up in Statesboro and all, some of all these other guys, they've been, they've been applying their knowledge and skill to learn something, so we're praying for that. Uh, listen, if uh, you are interested in uh, being involved in media or sound, uh, working in the sound booth, live stream, anything like that, Uh, I'm going to be doing some training on Tuesday night, Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday night at 6.30. Uh, If you're interested in that, just come let us know. You can tell Taylor, you can text us or you can come let us know. Uh, But if you're interested in being part of that, we have uh, spaces that we're trying to get some new people plugged in. And so if that's something that you're interested in doing, I'll be doing a training myself on Tuesday night at 6.30. I'd love to uh, get you uh, plugged into that. All right. So last week we started a series called Toxic. Toxic. And um, the series before that was called Living in Babylon. And Living in Babylon. Was a series about the pressures that we face from outside, right? So the external pressures, the external enemies uh, that put pressure on us. This series called Toxic is more about internal enemies that we deal with. And we talked last week, we started last week with a conversation about our thoughts, just uh, how our thoughts sometimes uh, can betray us, and what do we do with that? How do we take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ? So we're going to continue in this series today. We're going to go to The book of Genesis to start there, Genesis chapter 2. Now, before I get there, how many of you guys um, you drive a Ford? Where's my Ford people at? First on Race Day, that's what Ford stands for, right? How many of you guys are first on Race Day people, right? All right, how many of you guys are Chevy folks? Any Chevy people in the house, you know? Chevy people in the house, and what they think Ford stands for is found on road dead. Or what? What'd you say? Fix or repair daily, <laughs> you know. And then some of us, you know, uh, we might be uh, Dodge people, Randy Dodge folks in here. Dodge people, Ram people. Okay, how many of you glad you just have four tires and some gas in the car? Come on, all right. So um, <laughs> we're, you know, Ford. We, me, me and Randy, we own a Ford, and it's, it's been good to us. Uh, uh, but Ford has not always had great years. Okay. There have been some years where Ford wasn't didn't have a great reputation uh, and um, my sister, her I think it was her first car uh, was a 1972 Ford Pinto. Anybody remember the Ford Pinto, right? Yeah, so this was my sister's first car. Actually, I was texting with her, and I said, hey, I said, what was that car? You you had a Ford Pinto, right? She said, oh, yeah. She started blowing up my phone back with text messages, started sending me pictures. This is the picture she sent me. She said, this is exactly like the car that I had that I drove, the Ford Pinto, except that the front fender here, uh, that front fender was all Bondo, <laughs> you know, because uh, I think my dad had tried to fix it and knock out some dents and some, you know, some so uh, what I remember of this car was, it was like this, it was orange and Bondo color, uh, but that that was her first car, and so um, the thing about the Ford Pinto was this, is that Ford uh, decided um, in late '60s, early '70s, that they needed to try to compete with uh, Japanese automakers that were building these tiny cars and these economical cars, and so they said we're gonna we're gonna get into that market ourselves. And so they uh, developed the Ford Pinto, and the Ford Pinto, um, it was designed uh, to compete with these, these other vehicles, these other automakers. Now, the thing about the the Pinto was um, that it had a few issues. And uh, the issues that it had was that the gas tank uh, was right behind this bumper here. And uh, the way that that gas tank was positioned was there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, protection for it if you got rear-ended. And so if you got rear-ended, it would shove some bolts right into the fuselage of that fuel tank. And uh, it could push that fuel tank up, rupturing the fuel tank. Uh, take spewing gas into the cab of the car which is probably not a good thing Um, and and people are a lot of people injured right and so um, Ford knew this and they covered it up right they they buried it basically they uh, they said hey listen let's uh let's just kind of cover this up now what the the crazy thing about this was it would have cost them eleven dollars Per vehicle build to fix the issue, eleven dollars, eleven dollars more per vehicle would have covered uh, the issue that they had. And so, if I, I, I went and looked at the estimates, uh, I think there were just just under four hundred thousand Pintos that first year that they came out, just under four hundred thousand Pintos sold, um, and it would have been about a four million dollar, just a little about about four million dollars it would have cost Ford. To repair these vehicles, they didn't. they covered it up. people got hurt, pe- some people got killed, and so there were lawsuits brought against Ford Motor Company, and it became a big black eye on Ford Motor Company for a long time, uh, and it actually wound up costing them over a hundred million dollars in lawsuits, right and, and so what could what could have been covered by spending another eleven dollars on a car right? And, and about $4 million in that first year now is, is costing them over $100 million, and it cost them more than just that. It cost them their reputation as a car car maker, right? And, and so the Pinto has been laughable. People would uh, talk about, hey, uh, and this one lady I saw in the car, she had painted on the back of the car, don't follow too close, I'm explosive, right? <laughs> uh, that was what she had on the on the trunk. So, you know, this was a bad cover-up for them. Um, and so that was one of the worst cover-ups that we've seen in history in, in, in America. Uh, but we have cover-ups that happen every day, and that happens in, in our lives. There are things that we tend to cover up in our lives that are not good. There are things that we tend to cover up and try to hide and not deal with, and we try to push it away and say, it'll be all right, it'll be okay, and it's not. It's not all right, and it's not okay. And God looks at our lives and says, you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that. So this morning, we're going to deal with, uh, with that, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start reading the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Is a, this, is a, this is a verse that I read uh, during marriage ceremonies, and I read a part about the man and wife coming together. And then you get to this verse, and it gets a little bit awkward, right? Uh, because this verse, this is what it said. Adam and his wife were both naked. Come on, somebody. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. How many of you guys say, I wish that could be the case for me today, right? I wish I could feel no shame, right? But they were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, it's interesting because the very next sentence goes into, it seems like it breaks and launches into another story, but this is like a connector piece, and this is this is important that Adam and Eve, they had no shame in this relationship. They had no shame in the garden. They had no shame in their walk with God, and and so they had relationship, and they didn't even know what that was until we turn the page and go to the next verse and and. chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 it says and now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made and he said to the woman did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now see, we have like varying degrees of the truth going on here. You have the serpent who's taking the truth and and the serpent's twisting the truth because he said, did God really say that you can't eat? Well, he's trying to plant doubt there and what he's doing is he's taking a little bit of truth and a a little bit of a lie and he's twisting it to to create something else, right? He's trying to manipulate uh, Eve here and what happens with Eve is she kind of takes the bait and she is manipulating in a way that when she tells what she knows is the truth, she adds a little something to it that God didn't say because she said God said that we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and she says we can't even touch it. God didn't, never said that. If you go look in scripture that's not what he said. He says don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and now she's adding to it and so now we're starting to see the truth take varying twists and, and shapes and, um, and, and so there's, there's, there's some, some variations here going on says, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to her, says, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was standing right there with her. Come on, Adam. Right, We can't blame all this on Eve because Adam's where? He's right there. He's got his hand out. Hey, give me some of that, right? He he, he was with her, and he, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. God among the trees of the garden and the Lord God called to the man where are you once again I have told you this before when God asks a question it's not because he lacks information right it's not because God's actually lost Adam and Eve he's asking hey where are you I need you to ask that question Adam I need you Eve to ask that question to yourself and he answered I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid and and he said Who told you you were naked, right? This is a change. Something has happened here. And he's like, when when did this realization come to you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you gave me here with me, she gave me some. What happens is we have shame, and then he starts, what, shifting blame, Right? Right, And that's what happens to us today. We, we experience shame and then we, we start shifting blame around. Now, I just really want to focus on this last part here where he asked him that question. Hey, who told you you were naked? Who told you this? See, shame is not part of God's creation until we get to the story. Shame was not part of God's creation until you get to this moment here where shame enters the story. And shame enters the story, and now Yahweh, that has been walking with them, now Yahweh is scary. Because it says they, in, 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 in the last chapter, it says they were naked and they had no shame. Now it says, I hid myself, right? They're, they're living in shame at this point. And that word, that Hebrew word uh, for shame is the Hebrew word boosh. And boosh it goes much farther than just having shame or embarrassment. Anybody ever been embarrassed? Right. Yeah, I've been embarrassed before, right? And so, but it goes much, much farther and much, much farther beyond just having embarrassment. It goes to the point of feeling exploited and exposed. It it, it goes to the point of having a deep fear of this exploitation and exposure. They have been exploited and now they're exposed. And so what they, what they did was they hid themselves, right? They hid themselves. And so that's what shame does. It enters into the story here, in, into uh, chapter 3. They were afraid, and it's much more than embarrassment. See, what shame does is this. Shame makes you feel defective. Shame makes you feel defective. Shame uh, says once you're defiled, you can't be redeemed. That's what shame says. Then once you go there, there's no coming back. This is just who you are now. That's that's what you're going to carry around. Once once you're there, shame says, once you're defiled, you can't be redeemed. It makes you feel defective. See, we we look at shame, and shame is a little bit different than guilt because this is what guilt is. Guilt is this. Guilt is I did something bad or I made a bad choice, right? You felt guilty before. You've done this you you've made a bad choice or you did something bad and you felt guilt what shame does is it goes beyond that shame is this i am something bad i am a bad person i didn't just do something bad now i am something bad do you you see the difference there see shame says i'm defective shame says i'm gross shame shame says i should be avoided and i should be rejected by others Shame is this. Shame is an unwanted identity. That's what shame is. It's an identity that we take on, but we don't want it. We don't want to be that person, but that's, that's what we think. That's the lie that's been sold to us is that, yep, this is who you are. This is, this is what you've done, and this is who you are now, so you need to just kind of live in this. Shame is an unwanted identity, and what it does is it isolates us. It isolates us from each other. Because when we carry shame, we don't want to be around folks. We, we push away, we hide away, and ultimately we hide away from God. At least we try to. At least we try to push away from God. And so we get to this point here, and this question, this is a question that I pondered a lot over the years of just studying Genesis and, and this question of who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Who told you that there was something in you that was wrong, something in you that wasn't right, right? You know, who put that on you? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that you were defective? Who told you that you're not okay? Who told you that you needed to do this thing? You know, who taught you how to feel shame? Who was that that did that to you? If you felt shame, who taught you how to feel that way? Who was it that, that introduced you to that feeling, Right? Who put that on you? Who told you that you were ugly? Who told you that you were a failure? Who told, you, who told you that you weren't good enough? Who told you that? Who told you that you're not valuable? Who told you that you're not wanted? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Right? And we know who told us that. We know in the story who told them that. Who told them that was the serpent, The serpent told them that. And who's this serpent? Well, we see this serpent um, uh, throughout Scripture. This serpent we call the devil or Satan, right? And we use that term in in like a a name. we like, that's Satan, right? Like that's his name. But do you realize this? And and it took me a little while to to get this, that Satan is not a name. Satan is not a name. Uh, The devil is not a name. Uh, It is a title. Satan means the accuser. It's interesting to me that that this evil entity that we see in the form of a serpent, that gets called the accuser, that gets called the Satan or the devil, um, is never given a name in Scripture. You realize that? It, it, it's, like, it's like God says, I'm not even going to dignify this entity with a name, but this is who the who this entity is. He is the accuser. He is a liar. And that's who we see here putting this on. That's that's who accuses Adam and Eve. Because the accuser or Satan, he is the Lord of all judgment. He is the Lord of all judgment, bringing judgment on them. He accuses you and gets you to start accusing other people. Isn't that how it works? He accuses you. Now you start accusing other people. What did they do? They felt ashamed, and then he started trying to shift the blame. You know, I I feel accused. Now I'm going to start accusing someone else. Greg Boyd is a pastor, and this is what he says. He said, uh, this is what shame does to us. The judgment on us becomes judgment in us. Shame freezes us in the time of the judgment, and it is toxic. It freezes us in that moment. And whatever's happened in that moment we get stuck in that moment where we're we're stalled out and it doesn't just become judgment on us it becomes judgment in us and that becomes toxic to our soul so what do we do what did they do right what did they do immediately they not just hit themselves but what did they do they grab fig leaves right and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves um my son, Kobe, when he was about three or four years old, uh, Kobe, um, it, it was actually the night uh, before my dad's funeral. My dad had passed away, um, and so we were all at my mom's house. And there was, there was a bunch of us there. Uh, we had air mattresses all over the place. And Kobe and Cannon, my boys, were going to sleep in my mom's room um, on an air mattress, kind of at the foot of her bed, in between her bed and her armoire that had the TV on it. And, uh, so Kobe was already back there on the air mattress while everybody else was in the, um, in the kitchen. We were talking, and it's just a heavy night, right? It's my, my dad has, has died, and, uh, it's the night before the funeral. And, um, just in a few minutes we just heard this awful screaming,!" Oh, ah, ah. And so we take off, we run back to my mom's bedroom where this this awful sound is coming from, and Kobe is just, ah, he's just writhing around on this air mattress. And we asked him, he said, "What did you do?" He said, "I didn't do anything." Now, how many of you parents know that you found your kids in various states of situations? We're like, what did you do? And they say, I didn't do anything. No, obviously, you did something, right? Something happened to change it from very peaceful to chaotic in about three seconds. What happened? And what we realized is that my mom, she had this little, um, this little bottle uh, sitting kind of on her TV next on her TV back in her bedroom it was a bottle of mace a little spray thing of mace yes and and Kobe got a hold of it and he thought I want to smell it well he did and uh it was not a good thing right <laughs> uh you know and rain fretting in here everybody's gonna think we're bad parents right come on you've you've let your kids mace themselves before right <laughs> right everybody's had that experience and i mean that's just one of those things we look at now we're just thinking oh my goodness but he tried to cover it up right and he did not do a good job we knew something had happened his eyes were crazy his face looked looked wild right and uh, he's like, i didn't do anything you did something right and that's where you get to with Adam and Eve, that they're hiding themselves, that they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And what you have to understand is this, is fig leaves don't fit. Fig leaves don't fit, right? They won't do the job. And, 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 and that's it, guys, from where you're at right now. You know this, that there are times that you've tried to cover up and you know that what you did just wasn't working. It, it's not fixing it. It's not taking care of the issue. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not feeling better about this. And and what we have to understand is this: is the fig leaves didn't fit for Adam and Eve, and they don't fit for us. And so when God says, "What'd you do?" and we look at him and said, "Nothing." He's like, "You did something, right?" He knows. He knows. And so. The results of our attempts to try to deal with this, with fig leaves, are this. This is what this looks like for us when we try to do it on our own. It, it, it comes out like this. It comes out in despair. Despair is sin without redemption. I've done this thing, but there's no way for me to come back. That's what despair is. It is sin without redemption. It is self-loathing, you know, where we just, we just hate ourselves. Self-loathing is, is confession without forgiveness i've told you what i've done but there's no place for me to go with that so i've confessed but man everybody knows my story and it's just wild and i just uh, there's no forgiveness there it's anxiety anxiety is knowledge without hope or direction there you're anxious because you know although you know what's happening you know what's going on you don't know where to go you don't know what to do with this and so it leaves us in despair, it leaves us in self-loathing, it's, it leaves us with anxiety. But I'm so glad, I'm so glad that this story is here, because God deals with their shame. God deals with their covering. Actually, we need to be covered, right? We need a covering, but it's not a covering that we make. Actually, God does come into to, uh, the story and rescues them and covers them himself, and we see that, that God begins to cover people all throughout Scripture. Actually, Jesus deals with our shame in this way. Jesus steps into our nakedness. Jesus steps into our shame, and Jesus begins to reverse the curse for us. That's what happens. Jesus begins to reverse the curse, and he steps in to cover us. And so you have to know this, that Jesus has you covered, right? If you want to know who's covering you, Jesus has us covered. I can't cover myself. My lies can't cover this up. Who has me covered? God will cover me. Jesus will cover me. Jesus steps into where I'm at. He begins to reverse this curse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 some of you guys may know this this passage it says therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes where on jesus not on us not on our poor attempts, not on our fig leaves, not on our cover-ups, right, that that don't even cover anything up, that don't fix anything. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What he did was when he went to the cross, he didn't just go to the cross and take pain for us. He took our humiliation. See, the cross was a Roman instrument of execution, but it was not just invented to inflict pain. It was invented to tear you down and degrade you. It was, it was invented to expose you, right? And so they would strip them naked. They would put them on uh, this cross, before they would get to the cross, they would make them walk through, through crowds naked, and people would mock them. And, and make fun of them, make fun of their genitalia, and, and just, just tear them down. I want you to think about that, how shameful that would be. Jesus took that for us. Jesus took that for us. He did not just take our pain. He took our shame. He took our humiliation. He took our exposure. He took our exploitation, and he took it to the cross so that we could have victory, so that we could be redeemed so that we could stand up and say I'm no longer ashamed. I'm no longer. I'm no longer tied to that. I'm no longer. That's not my identity. That identity that's not who I am. Jesus is reversing the curse. Romans chapter 4 verse 7. This is what it says. It says blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Jesus has got you covered. Jesus has got you covered. You're blessed. When the Lord steps in, He says, I'm going to cover this. Not in a a sense to cover it up and not deal with it. When Jesus covers it, He actually covers us and deals with our stuff. But it turns out in a better way. It doesn't doesn't turn out into despair and self-loathing and anxiety. When Jesus deals with us, this is the result of that. When Jesus steps in, and this is where shame exits the story. Because, so where shame entered the story, this is where shame exits the story, right? Shame exits the story because Jesus, when he deals with us and covers us, this is the result of that there's hope because sin there's, there's sin has a redemption, right? It's not just I did this thing and there's nowhere to go. I did this thing and I went to Jesus, and he's, re- he's redeeming me. He's taking my sin and he's taking my shame. When, when I go to Jesus, there's joy. Because then I can confess. I can confess what's happened, what's been done, and I can be forgiven. I can find freedom in that. Then I can have hope and joy, and I can have what? I can have peace. Because even though I know what I've done, I have the knowledge of what's happened, I have a hope and a direction of where God's taken me. That's all right, I know what's happened but I know what he's, he's already done, and I know what he's, where, where he's taken me, right? This is what we have. This is the result of that hope, joy, and peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, because they don't understand this. They don't understand the cover-up. They're not equipped to cover that, right? But I am. He says, I give you something much, much better, much greater. It's redeeming. It's hope, joy, and peace. I'm going to ask somebody to come play. What Jesus does is this, is he restores our true identity, right? If shame, if shame is an unwanted identity, if shame is that identity that we carry around, and we don't want that, I don't want to be known like that, but that man, that's who I am, and that's just what I, that's what I carry around, and uh, that's, just, that's just me, Jesus helps us see the real us. Jesus takes that from us. He says, give me your shame. I've already took that to the cross. I've already dealt with that. I've already I've already gone there. I've already I've already been there. So now I'm showing you your true identity. Stand with me this morning. Jesus restores our true identity. So I want you to just take a few minutes. I want you to just close your eyes and bow your head with me. And maybe 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 you you've been carrying this around. Maybe you've been carrying around these internal enemies. Maybe this thing has been killing you because you've been carrying this and it's an unwanted identity. Something that's happened, something that's been done. Maybe somebody who, who told you you were naked. Who told you you were not valuable? Who were, who told you you were unwanted? That's the accuser and he's he's not just an accuser, he's a liar. Jesus says you are valuable. You are wanted. I have a good plan for you. I've gone to the cross so that you don't have to have shame, but you can have victory over the shame. And you can find that new identity, a true identity. That's what I've done. So if that's you, you just say, man, I want to know that. I want to step into that new identity. Just slip your hand up right now. I just want to pray for you. Thank you. Anybody else You said, man, I've just been carrying stuff. This stuff is killing me on the inside. I want to lay it down. Just just lift your hand up right now. I just want to pray for you. The things that I've been carrying on my shoulders, it has been eating at me, I just just, want to lay this down. I want to kill the thing that's killing me. Right? I want to get this out. So, Lord, we come to you right now. Lord, you're meeting us here. Holy Spirit, you are here in full power. Holy Spirit, you are here and you are dealing with hearts right now. Somebody who's been carrying this baggage and carrying this load. Somebody who has had this identity thrust on them that they don't want. Lord, right now, begin to break it. Right now, begin to set people free. Right now, Lord, I pray that as we take on your truth, we begin to see ourselves in a different light. We begin to see ourselves through different eyes. We begin to see your truth take the place of the lies that we've been living. Lord, this morning, I pray that you begin to kill the thing that's been killing us. Kill this thing on the inside of us that's held us back and held us down. It's told us we're not good. It's told us we're not wanted. It's told us we're not valuable. Lord, you tell us the truth. You restore our identity, our true identity. So, Lord, that's what we pray right now. Restore to us hope. Restore to us joy. Restore to us peace. Restore to us life. Restore us, Lord, I pray. Right now, do a work of restoration in us. Do a re- work of restoration in hearts right now, in minds right now. As we just begin to release this jump, just release it to us. That's right.